The text for the sermon is the first three verses, which I will not reread. The first three verses of Psalm 1. Let's read the psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So far we read God's holy word. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider text from the first psalm, and just a word of explanation, why is this the first psalm? It is not by inspiration, as for example, Matthew 1, or Colossians 1, or Jeremiah 1. Those are chapters where God inspired these men to write exactly the words that God wanted in the order that they are. So that Matthew 1 is the way it is because God had Matthew write it that way. The Psalms are very different. The Psalms are individual poems, really. God inspired the writers to write the Psalms as prayers or as songs that the people of God could use to speak to God. It gives us words that we can use as we desire to speak to Him. The Psalms are used for praising God. The Psalms are used for instruction in proper ways to speak and to live, and they even help us to express our emotions in a godly way. And especially, Psalms are used to worship God in spirit and in truth. The Psalms are written by a variety of men. David, of course, we know, Solomon, and Asaph. Others, not very well known, Ezra, rather Ethan, the Ezraite, and Moses. And for many of the other Psalms, we do not even know who wrote them. But we have 150 inspired Psalms that God has given, and Psalm 1 is the first one, providentially placed there by God. We don't even know who brought together the Psalms and why the order is given the way it is, but it certainly is a fitting Psalm to be first of the 150. It's one that is simple. Our children can learn it. It has beautiful figures in it. 
and it is something that we can sing with understanding. Tonight we consider the first three verses of this psalm as an applicatory message. An applicatory sermon is required by the church order, as you know, after the Lord's Supper is administered, then the evening service is applicatory. And it is that because the Lord's Supper is not only a time when we celebrate and, and remember the great work of Jesus in his suffering and death, but we came to the Lord's Supper to have our faith strengthened and to have our lives more holy, as you recall. Those are the words of the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. This is, we came to the Lord's Supper with that desire. And now, the proper response to that is what applicatory is about. And the proper response especially will be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. But it will be living out of the power of the Lord's Supper. It's good to see for us to see then what God expects of us as redeemed people who are grafted into Christ, who are living out of Him, who have been fed and nourished by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And again we say, it's thankfulness, but thankfulness is expressed by obedience. That's how we express our thankfulness in our daily life. In Psalm 1, it begins literally, Oh, the blessednesses of the man. The blessednesses of the man. And then it gives us a glimpse of that man who has such tremendous blessedness from God. From a negative point of view, it is that he shuns all the ways of the ungodly. From a positive point of view, the blessedness is of the man. This is the man who delights in the law of God and meditates in it day and night. We'll take it from the point of view of that positive side. The believers delight in Jehovah's law. That's the theme for the sermon tonight. The believer's delight in Jehovah's law. Well, notice in the first place his joy in Jehovah's law. Secondly, his shunning of evil. And thirdly, his blessednesses. Jehovah's law is his delight. What do we mean by Jehovah's law, first of all? Jehovah's law is God's will for his people. Psalm 40, verse 8, which we sang. Psalm 40, verse 8. No, we didn't sing that. We sang the Psalter number. But in Psalm 40, verse 8, you have a parallelism. A parallelism. And the parallelism is this. I delight to do thy will. Thy law is written in my heart. So the will of God and the law of God are the parallel parts there they're identifying each other. God's law is his will. Now, when we speak of law, though, we mustn't merely think of the Ten Commandments that are given and read to us every Sunday. That's part of it. 
It's very much a connection, as God said to Moses in Exodus 24, verse 12, I will give you a table of stone, a law and commandments. Law and commandments God would give to them. The word for law in the text emphasizes instruction. God gives his law, and that, that's more, again, more than just the Ten Commandments. It's really the whole of the scriptures with an emphasis on revealing God's will again. God gives his word to us to reveal himself to us. Who is this God? He wants us to know that. What is his will for us? What is our relationship to him? That's what the law of God sets forth for us. That God can give a law which expresses his will is due to the fact that he is God. He's our creator. He's the one who holds us up. He's the one that rules over us. So he has the right to say, this is my will for you. This is how I want you to live, to worship, to serve me. But there's more to it. God is a God of order. God is a God of order. And he created every single creature with a particular purpose and function for everything, whether it's the mountains, the stars, the sea, the horse, or human beings. God has a purpose for each, and therefore he has a law for each one, a law for every creature that God has made. But the law of God for human beings, for man, is, is unique because man is unique. A thinking, willing creature created in the image of God, having righteousness and holiness and a true knowledge of God, God determined that man would know God, would actually know his creator, would know the God who loves him, that would know the God who cares for him and blesses him. We speak of man being a friend-servant of God, a friend-servant of the living God. And God determined that we would know him, and as we know him, be able to praise him with understanding. Let me illustrate that just a bit, as what God has in mind for us. Consider in the days of Solomon when he is king, every Israelite would know something about Solomon. They might see his processions. They might hear about the tremendous wealth that he has and the power that his armies have. They might read his laws and say, those are just laws. They might hear about his decisions and say, those are wise judgments that our king makes. So they would know about Solomon. But consider the knowledge of someone who is a friend of Solomon, a close friend of King Solomon. Someone who can go and talk with Solomon and not merely hear about what Solomon said, but hear from Solomon's own words, his tremendous knowledge and his wisdom, that it could ask questions of Solomon and could have discussions with him about 
the things that Solomon saw in the plant world and in the, the whole of God's revelation. Solomon had tremendous wisdom. And this friend would go and commune with Solomon and would enjoy immensely these visits where he could talk about these things. He knew Solomon in his greatness and in his glory. That's what God wants his people to have. That kind of a knowledge of God. Not merely that we know how great God is, that we know something about his wisdom, but that we actually know God and can enjoy God as our God and as our Father. Accordingly, God speaks to his people. He speaks to his people. As if God says, I am God. I am infinitely exalted above you. There is absolutely no one like me. I am all-powerful. I am everywhere present. I am your creator. But I have determined to bring you into my own covenant life, Father, Son, and Spirit, so that you would come to know me intimately as your friend. I will live with you, God says to his people. But this knowledge that you would have would have to start with a revelation of God because God is so far exalted above his people. And there is a gulf between God and his people that we cannot approach to him. He must come down to us. And God is determined, therefore, to reveal himself to his people in Jesus Christ. Jesus would bridge the gap between that glorious, exalted God and a mere creature of the earth. Jesus stands between and will bring us to know God with that kind of intimate knowledge. God's law is part of that. It's part of God revealing himself to us so that we will know this God from experience. We will know his greatness from his word. We will know that he is the only God and that there is no one like him, infinite, righteous, and powerful. Jehovah says, he says to us, I am Jehovah. I do not change. I am no beginning. I have no ending. I do not depend on anyone for my existence nor for my blessedness. So he declares to us, this is my law. This is how you will know me. Through this word, you will know me, my blessedness, my glorious attributes, the uniqueness of my persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the beautiful covenant life that I have and all of my powerful works. I'm showing them to you by and in my word so that you will know not only my greatness but also what I have done for you what I have done for you and what I have in store for you and therefore too what I expect of you as my people what I expect of you in my kingdom and covenant so the will of God, the law of God, is his will revealing himself, but particularly now revealing his will to us. 
to us, that is, to his people, and that's to a believer, to one who is elect in Jesus Christ, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, given the life of Jesus Christ, given faith that can embrace Jesus Christ, that believer delights in the law of God. He delights in the law of God. You understand that's not natural. No one just naturally delights in the law of God. Adam and Eve did before they, were, before they sinned, when they were in the state of perfection, to know God's will. They loved to do God's will. They wanted to know what is God's will for them in their life. But after the fall, the natural condition of man is he hates the true knowledge of God. He despises somebody saying this is God's will for you. He rebels against it instinctively. He hates being shown that he is corrupt and vile, everything that is opposed to the goodness of God. It's only when God changes a person, when God works in his heart, makes a holy place in that heart, when he, by his spirit, puts the love of God into that heart, that that person then begins to love God and to love what is good. It takes a total transforming work of God to make someone delight in God's will, God's law. When that happens, that person holds that law as high as it can be. He absolutely adores the will or the law of God. It is precious. It is not an ordinary book. It is not an ordinary law. It is something separate, holy unto him. God speaks there. And the believer who has faith and who knows that God then recognizes the voice of God there, that God is speaking to him. He hears God speaking. It is an astounding privilege to have the law or the word of God at one's disposal. Because the believer delights in God, he delights in his word. And in every revelation of God, he is thrilled by what it reveals to him of God, the mighty works of God. He stands in awe of the power of God and the wisdom of God and his righteous judgments. He is humbled to the dust when he reads of what God has in store, the tremendous love that God has and what God has eternally determined to give to him. This world, of course, is attractive to his flesh. Every believer has that wretched nature that is always pulling him toward the world. And that flesh does not delight in the law of God at all. But the spiritual side, from that perspective, the child of God delights in God's law. If you would take Psalm 119, which is an exposition of the law or word of God, 
Almost every verse contains a synonym for the law of God. And then look at what does the psalmist say there about God's law. Let me give you some of the things that it says. Over and over again it says that he delights in the law, as Psalm 1 does. He finds treasure, treasure in the law of God. It's something that when he finds it, he it's delightful. I've found a treasure here, he says, in the law of God. The law of God is his song that comes out of his heart, his own soul. The law of God is, tastes sweeter than honey. We would say to children, sweeter than candy. That's the law of God. Better than silver and gold is God's law. He beholds wonders in that. He, he's astounded by what he finds in the law of God, and he loves God's law. How does he express that? How does that delight, that love, that, that joy in the law of God, how does that come into expression in his daily life? Well, all right, just think about our natural life. Somebody who delights in cars. How does that come out in his life? Somebody who delights in quilting. How does that come out in their life? Somebody who delights in reading. How does that come out in their life? You can see it, can't you? It's, it's very obvious. This is their delight. This is what brings joy to them because they're involved in it. And, and the psalmist says that's what happens to the man who delights in the law of God. In his law doth he meditate day and night. He meditates in that law of God. What does that mean? What, what is that going to involve if a person's meditating in the law of God day and night? Well, first of all, it means... Clearly, he studies it. He studies the Word of God. He wants to learn what it says, and he wants to gain more and more knowledge of God and of his works and of his promises. So meditating will involve studying that Word of God. Secondly, it will then involve pondering. Pondering. It's not studying it merely so I can take a test and get the right answers. Sometimes we have to do that. But this study is involving a man's soul. He wants, he ponders it. What does this really mean? What's the significance of this? The law of God is deep. You will never come to the end of it. No matter how much of your life you give to the study of the Word of God, you will come to a point where you say, I can't go beyond that. Every single person, the most brilliant theologian, comes to that point where he says, I, this is a point that I can't grasp. It's beyond me. The law of God is deep. You'll never come to the end of God because He is infinite. The believer, who by definition then believes in Christ, as he's searching this law, is always seeking to, to behold there 
The revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ, always. Christ is the center of all the revelation of God. And the law, too, points us to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was like a schoolmaster, Paul says to the Galatians, that led us to Christ. Well, it's not a schoolmaster the same way it was for them, but it still brings us to Christ. The law of God points out to us our sins. The law of God says you can't keep this. You fall far short. This is God's will for you. Now look at your life. And this is what God wills, but, but this is how you're living. You're so far removed from the will of God in so many aspects of your life. And so it points us to Christ. The only hope we have is in Jesus Christ. But it isn't merely that Jesus is the one to whom the law is pointing us because of our sins. That, that is the first purpose of the law. But the law also reveals Jesus Christ, reveals him, because Christ is the revelation of God. Everything that God has revealed about himself fits together in Jesus Christ, the whole of his revelation. Everything that we see around us was created by Jesus, was created for him. They exist for his sake and for his glory, and he directs all of history. You see Christ in all the law. And when you look at Christ, you not only learn about God, but you learn what it really means to do the will of God, because he's the only one who kept the law of God perfectly. His righteousness, his perfect devotion, all of the infinite perfections of God come out in and through Jesus Christ. You see the glory of God in his face. We study that. We ponder these things. And then... We do that believing it, believing it. How does this apply to me? We do not approach the scriptures or the will of God in any way with a critical attitude saying, well, prove to me that this is really God's will. That's not how a believer approaches the word of God in any way. It is God's word. We love it. We receive it as God's word. We believe everything. That word teaches us. Meditating. Meditating in that word day and night. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you have a 10-hour Bible study every day, and that's all you do is study the Bible. That's obviously not what God calls us to do. But it means that that word of God is ever in the mind, in the heart, and often upon the lips of the believer. It's on his mind in the morning because he reads it in the morning. It's on her mind at night because she reads it at night. It's on their mind during the day because they have devotions in that word during the day. 
And they're often looking for a book or a publication that will help them understand that word better than they do now. That desire, the desire in their heart is that this word will be in their hearts. It will fill their minds. It will occupy their thoughts. It will determine their desires. It will direct their lives, shape their plans, set their goals. It governs their behavior, what they will do or what they refuse to do, what they will say or what they will refuse to let come out of their mouth, their time, their recreation, what they watch, what they read, what they're listening to. It's governing their lives. That's what it means to meditate on it day and night. It's always a part of the thinking of the believer. Psalm 119, verse 5, expresses the desire, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. It's almost discouraging, isn't it? The psalmist says, Oh, that my ways were directed. They're not. They're not directed to keeping the law as they ought to be. But he desires that. He delights in that. And he longs to follow that perfectly. Paul says, This is a power. Understand that the Word of God is not like any other book in the world. The law of God is... When God gives us that law and the desire, it's more than a desire. It's a power that's working on us. The word of God is able to make thee wise unto salvation, Paul writes to Timothy. So this is living out of the Lord's Supper. Living out of the Lord's Supper. We came to the Lord's Supper and we said, I want my faith to be stronger. I want my life to be more holy. And now we were fed and nourished by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. How do you respond to that? Was it genuine? Do you really want to grow? Or are you satisfied thinking, oh, I'm good enough? I've got enough knowledge of God. I've got a good enough understanding of doctrine. I don't have to search anymore. That's not living out of the Lord's Supper. Living out of the Lord's Supper says, I want to grow. And this, Psalm 1 is saying, this is how you will grow. Delight in the law of God. Meditate on it day and night. At the same time, this delight in the law of God, will also lead a believer to shun the ways of the ungodly. That's the second thing that we notice. Those who hate God, they, they are described with three figures in this text. Three different ways they are described. First of all, it speaks of the counsel of the ungodly, the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
Now, the word ungodly, that word in the Hebrew, is actually used four different times in this psalm, though it's usually translated wicked. And that's the way it's translated later in the psalm as well. The basic meaning is someone who makes a tumult, someone who rages, someone who riots. And that describes a sinner as he stands before that God who says, this is my will for you, and he rages against that. He rebels against it. Openly, brazenly, he commits sins that are contrary to God. These are the wicked of the world. This is a word used to describe the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a word used to describe Nathan, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram when they revolted against God. They will not hear. But they have a counsel, the counsel of the ungodly. A counsel is a plan. These men do not merely sin against God. They have a certain plan. How are we going to revolt against God? That's their counsel. And they give their counsel to other people and say, let's together revolt against God. This is what he wants us to do. This is what, let's, let's do this instead. They have a certain plan or counsel of how they will revolt against God. So that, first of all, the counsel of the ungodly. Secondly, the way of sinners, nor standeth in the way of sinners. The word sinner is, is the ordinary word for sinner in the Bible, meaning to miss the mark. In Judges chapter 20, verse 18, it speaks of some men of Benjamin who could hurl a stone with a slingshot and not miss the mark. They didn't miss it. Well, this word means to miss the mark. It's also a word that the Bible uses to describe the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. They missed the mark. And of course, the idea is this, that when God creates man, he creates man to serve him, to seek God's glory, not his own, and to live in service of the living God. This is why God created man. God gave the law, in fact, in order that man would know what his will is. But the sinner dismisses that. He turns his back entirely on the way that God says, go this way, and he goes the opposite way, deliberately missing the mark. Instead of aiming for the glory of God, he aims for his own glory. Instead of living in holiness unto God, he immerses himself in iniquity and all of the sinful lusts of the flesh. But he's on a way. He's on a certain pathway a way that is not toward God, a way that does not lead to life with God, but is exactly in the opposite direction. It is the broad way that Jesus describes that leads to destruction, the way of the ungodly, the sinner. There's the counsel of the ungodly. There's the way of the sinner. And thirdly, there's the seat of the scornful. Oh, a scornful is someone who mocks, someone who mocks. And here, clearly, it is someone who mocks God. 
he mocks God's truth. He denies God's truth. He loudly claims there's nothing to this word of God. There's no truth here. There's nothing that you must pay attention to. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. This life is all there is. When you die, that's the end of you. There is no life to come. There is no second coming of Jesus. There is nothing but this life. And then they turn that ridicule on God's people and they say, why do you believe this stuff? You can't prove anything that you believe. It's not scientific. It will not get you more money to believe this. It will not get you fame or prosperity or a better life if you live in harmony with it. It's all foolishness. And so the ungodly, the scorner, mocks the way of God and the church. The seat of the scorner is where he resides. It could almost translate it his dwelling place. It's where he congregates with other scorners, other mockers, and they ridicule the truth of God and his word. Those three things taken together describe what man is in his fallen state. Apart from Jesus Christ, that's what everyone is. They're opposed to the law of God. They're absolutely devoted to corruption, to denying and blaspheming God's name. Well, the man who delights in the law of God will have nothing of that. He shuns that. He will not go in. He will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Those who rage against God, those who are calling for others, come along with us and walk in dis disobedience. He shuns their advice. He will not listen to their schemes. He will not join them in their wickedness as they revolt against God. Nor will he stand in the way with sinners. He will not stand with them. Their way leads to destruction. He sees that. He knows where it is going. It's not aiming for God's glory. It's aiming for a kingdom of men. He will not take their position and go along with them. Their feet are on a different path. Their feet of these people are on the path to destruction. His is on a narrow, narrow path that leads to eternal life. Nor will he sit in the seat of the scornful. He will not be in their company. He will not abide in their house. He does not fellowship with them. Those are not his friends. Those who mock God, mock his truth, he will not be with them. They vex his soul. Not as if it isn't attractive to him. Not as if the way of the ungodly and the, the way that leads to destruction is not something that tugs at his flesh. Of course it does. He is exactly like them, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. And he's guilty sometimes of some of the very same sins. But he deliberately shuns their ways, their counsel, their habitations. You can see why. 
the law of God, which is his delight, warns him against all of that and shows what it leads to. The law of God is continually saying to us, thou shalt not, because we're prone to that. God has to say, no, that's not the way that you must walk, may walk. It directs one's life in the path of the antithesis, the antithesis. The law of God directs us toward God. All around us is evil that is attractive to our flesh, but the antithesis says, I say no to that. What the world holds in front of me, what the world uses to attract my flesh, I say no to that. I say yes to God and to his way of living. That's an antithetical walk. And very clearly, the text is warning us, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot delight in the law of God and walk in the way of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, and reside with scorners. You cannot have it both. It's one or the other. Who is the one that the text is describing? Are you? Are you this person who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night and that will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scornful? Well, all of us today went to the Lord's Supper and confessed, no, I'm, I'm a sinner. This doesn't describe me very well. The reality is, of course, that only Jesus Christ could do this. He did it perfectly. Even when he was hanging there on the cross, enduring the wrath of God, he was still delighting in God's will. Not my will, but thy will. He prayed, and he did it, and he delighted to do God's will. By his perfect obedience, he pays for our failures. They are so many. That's what the Lord's Supper is testifying to us. He earned a righteousness that he imputes to us. And he does work in us too. Whenever he justifies, he also sanctifies. He makes us to be holy and gives us the power and the desire to walk as this psalm says we must. To delight in the law of God, to meditate in it, and to shun the ways of the ungodly. We were fed at the Lord's Supper with his body and blood, with his life. You have his life in you. Today you became more and more united to him, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone of the very body of Jesus Christ. The effect, the effect of that should be more than just a nice 
feeling. There's comfort there. But it should be more than merely comfort that, yes, I am saved, as important as that is. The effect should last longer than merely till 7 or 8 o'clock tomorrow morning when real life starts up. We should be delighting in the law of God tomorrow so that we talk about it. I know when someone loves golf. doesn't take me long to find that out. I know when someone loves basketball. doesn't take me long to find that out. How long does it take for people around you to know you delight in the law of God? You delight in it. It should be on our lips. It should be something we talk about. Why are we so afraid to talk about our delight? What's so important to us? That man, that woman, who delights in the law of God, who shuns the way of the ungodly, is a blessed believer. Literally, a happy person. Oh, the blessednesses of the man, the, the happiness of that man. Now again, the clear implication is that if there is a happiness or a blessedness on the man who delights and who shuns, then there is no happiness in the way of the wicked. And the Bible makes that very plain. The curse of God is on the house of the wicked. The curse of God is there. Theirs is the way of sorrow. Theirs is the way of death. Theirs is the way of experiencing. Can you, I, I just, a child of God can't even imagine that. But to get up in the morning and to think and to know. They don't want to think about it. They put that under. They're under the wrath of God. The killing, destroying wrath of God is upon them. And it will go with them every step of the day. And it will finally drag them down to eternal destruction. That's their life. We need to be reminded of that because they put on quite a show of happiness. They go after money. They get it. They get millions of dollars and they're, they can enjoy life. They can do whatever they want. But that, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. A man who, says, who has abilities and he makes himself a star and he's, he's able to play basketball and make millions and he, he looks pretty happy and you say, that looks pretty good. And you might say even to them sometimes, well, how do you, how do you arrive at this? And they'll tell you, you need simply to devote yourself day and night to this one singular goal. You pursue it with all your life. Go after your dreams. Pursue them, and you'll be happy. You might say, but wait a minute. I, I serve God. I, I can't devote all my life to a pursuit of that. And they will laugh you to scorn. Their way looks happy, but if you're not seeking God, 
You are walking on the path that leads to eternal death. And his curse and his wrath is on that person every step of the way. There's no happiness there. This happiness that Psalm 1 talks about is obviously not something you earn. You don't earn anything with God. But it is the way of blessedness. It is the fruit of living unto God, delighting in His Word, coming to know God better. Our faith has been strengthened and we delight to know God better. That's our joy, to know Him better, to delight in His perfections, to be able to draw near to God in prayer is our delight. It isn't what it should be. It isn't my delight the way it ought to be. But think about it. When you are in heaven, how happy will you be there? What will be your joy? Is it not this, that you're living with God? That you get to know him better and better and better and, and every day, to put it in our terms, just is better than the day before. Because I know God, because I'm living unto him. I'm, in, I'm delighting in his will with nothing in me to drag me back in the way of sin. Queen of Sheba, when she came to Solomon and heard his wisdom and saw his glory and his riches, she said, happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. But that's what you and I will do, not before Solomon but before Christ himself, to be able to hear him speak. That will be our joy. Part of the blessing that God gives is that he makes this man, this woman, to be fruitful unto every good work. That's the picture, a tree planted by the rivers of water, a tree that never runs out of water, that will always have plenty so that it can produce green leaves and fruit in its season. That's, of course, a picture, a picture of spiritual blessings, a child of God who is by the rivers of water, the spirit that continually fills him, that continually flows into him and produces in him all manner of fruit. He's alive. He's healthy. He's spiritual. He has happiness. The fruit, of course, that is produced is the fruit of good works. The fruit of good works. Paul wrote that to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 he talks about how when he heard of their, their faith that we do not cease to pray for you. This is verse 9. And to desire, now listen, to desire that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. 
Now, this isn't just an Old Testament figurative expression in Psalm 1. Paul says, this is what I'm praying for, that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will, his law. That's God's will. With all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then what is the fruit of that? That ye may walk worthy of God unto all pleasing, being fruitful unto every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's, that's exactly what Psalm 1 is describing. Literally, says Psalm 1, it produces fruits, fruits in its season. And that indicates there's different kinds of fruits. In a time of adversity, the fruit that is produced by the one who delights in the law of God is patience. In adversity, patience. In prosperity, thankfulness to God. When the days are dark and there's adversity and trouble, it's trust, believing that God is in control, that he works all things for our good. Day after day, there's a love for fellow saints. There's a desire to serve them. All sorts of fruits come out of the one who delights in the law of God. That's blessedness. That's blessedness. The fact that God makes a person fruitful in the church is a blessing to that person. We do not deserve blessedness. We do not deserve happiness. We all acknowledge we deserve death. We deserve God's wrath. But in Jesus alone, we are blessed. Listen to Psalm 65. Verse 4, blessed is the man, blessed, happy, blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Chosen in Christ, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit. He makes us to delight in his law, and our joy grows. So that the psalmist says, Oh, the blessednesses of the one who delights in the law of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy abounding goodness to us that thou hast given us thy will, thy law, to know thee, to know thy will for us, and then to give us the grace that we need to begin to walk in it. We want to grow in that. We want to have our lives to be characterized by this delight. So, Lord, may that be true of us. We plead with thee, apply this word to our hearts, to our lives, for Jesus' sake for his glory, for thy glory. Amen.